Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. So let's get going. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your hosts, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro. guys, you're invited to join Chris and Corey and their guest, Roderick Jefferson, the CEO of Roderick Jefferson and Associates, a sales enablement consultancy firm. This trio of sales gurus outlines the whys and hows of providing sales teams with the information, training, content, and tools that reps need to successfully engage buyers throughout the buying journey. This is known as sales enablement. Sounds like a pretty simple follow the blueprints process, doesn't it? And yet, as Roderick informs us, if you ask 10 people what sales enablement is, you'll get a multitude of answers. Chris and Roderick discuss this quandary and more specifically how the pandemic has impacted training and overseeing sales teams now that each rep works from home, physically away from their manager's watchful eye. Roderick relates this problem to that of an orchestra whose conductor is missing. Like so many other things now, sales enablement must be fine-tuned to this new situation. In order to orchestrate and conduct a sales team so that each rep plays their part and uses the provided resources in a collaborative manner, a major change must take place in how they are managed. If you're a follower of the Market Dominance Guys, you'll know that this episode will have you nodding along with the opinions of Chris, Corey, and their guest and jotting down notes from their insights. Stay tuned. They aim to help you dominate your market in this episode of Market Dominance Guys called An Enabler is a Good Thing in Sales. Well, welcome to another episode of the Market Dominance Guys with Corey Frank and the Sage of Sales, Chris Beal. Today, Chris, we have yet another guest, I think, and uh, our booking agents finally found time to get on the calendar with, and in fact, I, I think he's probably the only guest we've had that could say they have a lifetime achievement award from anybody, right? Well, actually, I got a lifetime achievement award from Luby's Cafeteria, but, but Roderick has one from Selling Power that he got. And so Roderick Jefferson, the sales enablement OG of all OGs, is with us. We'll talk a little bit about it, but sales enablement at Oracle and at Salesforce and our Marketo and way back even to Siebel. In fact, I think you did sales enablement before it was even called sales enablement, right? That's I did. Press, no, right? As far as I know, I'm the guy that actually created the nomenclature sales enablement, oddly enough. There's one other guy that claims it. He could have it, maybe. Who knows? Well, we have the right guest for the market dominance guys then today, certainly, Chris. But I am curious, before we start, though, Roderick, and we talked about this on the phone the other day, is when you get a lifetime achievement award, is it is it assumed that you just they put you out to pasture and like there's no more content coming out of the grape of yours and and there's no more good ideas? If you do happen to create anything that's that's good, that's fresh, that's new, what do they call that award then? You know what they say about assuming. So we're not even gonna go down that route. <laughs> so let's not assume anything. I think if there's anything else, maybe it'll be really cool to have something named after me. <laughs> Other than that. Who knows? Like a Lombardi trophy. There you go. Perfect. Like the Lombardi. Kind of yeah. like that. Yeah. The Jefferson. Chris, do you have an award named after you by chance yet? 
Even my children aren't named after me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. Because you guys have been, I've known, I think I've known Roderick for almost as long as I've known you, Chris. So it's great. And Roderick was one of the first clients that I had that actually took my call before the pre-27 seconds. He took a cold call from me and actually bought something from me. So, and he hasn't been able to get rid of me in, in 15, 20 years or however long it's been. So it's great to have both you guys on the, on the market dominance guys here, Roderick. So appreciate you taking the time with me and Chris. Since we do have a short amount of time, I just want to jump into this, this concept of sales enablement 3.0. I hear some guy wrote a book on it, right? So you just released your, your worldwide bestseller. They're making it into a movie, I hear. But sales enablement 3.0, when you told me that, I'm a little panicked because I barely mastered sales enablement 1.0 and let alone 2.0. I completely missed 2.0 and we're right into 3.0. So maybe you can talk uh, talk a little bit about what is sales enablement 3.0 and, and what did I miss? Yeah, you know, I don't think anything's been missed. And that's exactly why I wrote sales enablement 3.0 is the fact that we have been doing the same things the same way for 20 plus years that I've been in sales enablement. And I was looking at things from a new set of lenses, like all of us now with COVID. And I'll say the best thing that's happened personally to come out of COVID is the fact that it's done two things. One, it separated the practitioners from the theorists in sales enablement. And secondly, it has made all of us get comfortable with being uncomfortable. We now have new technology. We've got all this great innovation around us, but we're still running programs the same way. Then comes COVID. Guess what? You can't do that. You don't get to go stand in front of folks anymore. You don't get to build that rapport out at dinner or having cocktails or or out playing golf. Some do, but most. (laughs) You don't get to do that. So I was really looking at what are we going to do different and how are we going to do it different? But more important, and both of you guys know me, I'm about the why. Why do we have to change? Well, the first thing that came to mind was we've got to stop being seen as a cost center. We've got to stop being seen as the fixers of broken things and broken people. And so the thing that came to me was you train animals and you enable people. We literally have to get to the point to where it's not just about training. It's really about enablement. It's those five Ps, the programs, the platforms, the processes, and the people that all just jump out at me. Here's the problem with sales enablement. Big problem I have. And I love my vertical. I love my space. But we've gotten away from realizing that we actually are about people. We're about getting people bigger, faster, and stronger. So at its core, sales enablement 3.0 really comes down to taking an innovative approach focused on increasing sales productivity through what I call a systematic approach to support the content, the tools, and the people to drive increased revenue. So when I wrote the book, I wrote it as a blueprint because I wish I would have had this as I was coming up the ranks. I've been fortunate to do every role inside of sales enablement from coordinator to program manager to owner, all the way up to executive level. So the book will actually provide folks with a blueprint that'll help them to navigate the twists and turns that ultimately lead to designing, deploying, measuring, and iterating a world-class sales enablement organization, not just programs. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and Sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell's patented technology loads your best sales folks up with eight to 10 times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their Impossible Whopper kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com.
Chris, Chris, to you, over the years running and leading entire organizations, let alone sales organizations, what have you kind of seen? We've talked about this a couple of times on the market dominance guys, particularly alignment or misalignment between sales and marketing and training and hiring, et cetera. But what are some of the more advances that you've seen in this kind of the sales enablement 2.0, 3.0 world that we're living in that kind of adds to what Roderick's saying that would have made the life certainly easier 10 years ago, 20 years ago versus uh, today where you have these type of blueprints available? Well, necessity is the mother of pretty much everything. And certainly mother of invention and and getting it real when it comes to things like sales enablement. I mean, sales enablement is broad enough that anything can drift in there, right? So you can have a big old bright sun in there and then you can have a little planet out there circling way, way far away. And you go, ah, oh, it's all sales enablement, it's a big house. But you know, to me, it's always been like this. If it doesn't address the bottleneck in the business, you shouldn't be investing in it. And one of the one of the challenges I've seen, it's not just sales enablement, but everything that's about getting better is everybody wants to be important. And if everybody wants to be important, that means everybody wants to have their thing be something that needs to be improved. But most things don't need to be improved. There's one thing that needs to be improved, it's the bottleneck. And if you don't take step one and go find the bottleneck, you're just messing around. You're just like putting people to work. It's like, what are you doing? Well, I'm grading the side of this road. Well. Does the road ever need to be built? Well, that's somebody else's problem. I'm busy grading the side of the road because somebody gave me a, back when I used to work at McCormick Ranch building that thing, right? Some Hungarian dude was yelling at me and I had a rake and I had a shovel and he said, Chris, shovel you the concretes. Well, I shoveled the concretes, my friend. You know, that's what I did, right? Did it make any difference? Was there any why in it? Who knows? Because the why, when you operationalize why, you operationalize why by finding the process bottleneck that responds in this way. We make it bigger, we make stuff go through it faster at the same quality, we get more out the end, revenue. That's what we want is revenue. And sales enablement because of COVID has finally had to face the necessity of being more relevant and addressing the bottleneck because the bottleneck conveniently moved in a moment to a new place, which was communicating with your salespeople how they're supposed to do their job because they used to just kind of eat it up by osmosis out on the floor. And now suddenly there ain't no floor. So now it's like, oh, we actually have to do this thing. Now it's still hard to figure out what you're measuring when you do that thing, but at least you had to do it. And that's necessity. So I think that we've had a really interesting transition. You know, you've always been a systematic guy, Corey. I could go out on your floor and I could see systems. I could walk out there and I could say to the person with me from Connect and Sell, look at that. See what those five guys are doing over there? I guarantee you they do that every single day. That five right over there, because this is a Corey Frank shop. So that's what happens, right? You've always done systems. But for most people, they don't do systems. Yeah. They, don't do, they just let osmosis do its job, and then they want, they take credit. Tim Ferriss in Tools of Titans. It's funny, Chris, we were just talking about that with the team over at Youngblood Works today. Uh, said very, uh, said he interviewed Seth Godin and talked about that very thing that you and Roderick are talking about that departmental goals or vanity metrics, Roderick, which I've heard you talk about many times, mm-hmm. right? Chris and I talk about butts that. and seats and smiley sheets. That's right. <laughs> but, but those departmental goals, those are for average organizations, but top tier organizations have systems in place that are replicable over time. And I think that how many different ways can you attack a territory? How many different ways? Can you 
hire a sales rep? How many different ways can you go to market? There's, there's a handful. There's not an N amount. And so after years and years of sales in the digital world today, I think that if you don't have a system, even if it doesn't work, right, it sounds like you're, you're missing out if you are stovepiping or tearing your organization into these different fiefdoms, marketing versus sales versus recruiting versus training, um, retention team, account management team, et cetera, without a system to kind of get a snug fit. I think you used analogy of an orchestra, which I like Roderick to kind of describe all this, correct? Yeah, it's collaboration, it's communication, it's orchestration, which standalone sounds like a lot of fluffy marketing terms, but it's not, and I'm going to dig deep, but I want to double tap on something that Chris said earlier is we don't do enough of finding the why as sales enablement folks, and we've got to go deeper on that. And to the point around the vanity stats, yeah, I believe there are two different types of metrics when it comes to sales enablement. One that enablement influences and impacts, and then another set that we own. On the sales side, the pieces that we influence are the typicals of average deal size, collateral frequency, deal velocity, pipeline creation and velocity, quota attainment, time to revenue, all those. And I'm going to say this directly to my sales enablement folks that may be listening. Stop saying that you drive revenue unless you carry a bag. You do not. You influence and you impact revenue. The things that we own are the things like the accreditations, the certifications, the needs analysis, the programmatical bills, the tools, the processes, the programs, those things in sales. And then on the success side, a whole other set of metrics that some claim we own, and I don't believe we do. I think we impact and influence. Adoption rates, annual recurring rates, uh, customer churn rates, red account reduction, those kind of things. And so how do you come about understanding how to get those metrics right and who you need to work with? That's where the orchestration piece comes in that you were just talking about, Corey. And it's literally the analogy of we've got all of these different pieces to an orchestra. You've got strings, woodwinds, percussion, brass, et cetera, right? That come into play and trying to do the right thing and make this incredible orchestrative sound. Now, let's now akin that to the lines of business. You've got sales, sales enablement. You've got marketing, product marketing, engineering, product management, et cetera. And they're all trying to do the right thing for the customer or the prospect. The problem is they're stepping over each other. Sometimes they're playing sour notes. They're just a bit off until one person or one organization, the orchestrator, which I believe is sales enablement, steps up, taps the stand, and now all of that chaos becomes a beautiful sheet of music. That's what enablement does. And the problem, and something else you said earlier, Chris, that really resonates with me, and that is there are so many different definitions of what sales enablement is. And I think if you ask 10 people, you'll get 12 answers. And I don't know that any of them would be wrong. The problem is enablement does not have standard nomenclature similar to what PMI has for project management. And that's kind of the goal of sales enablement society is to put that all together. I don't think we've hit that target yet. I think we've hit all the spots around it, but I don't think that target has been hit. So what we've got to do is understand what sales enablement means in your given company, based upon the maturation cycle of where your company is today, and also what the goals are of where you're going. Chris, with a, with a weapon like Connect and Sell, you have a front row seat oftentimes of people who their mindset, their goals, their heart may be in the right place, but implementing a weapon like Connect and Sell flushes out all these misaligned enablement pieces in an organization, does it not? Well, yeah, down to a certain point, not all of them. Really, 
All Connect and Sell is generally used for is to create discovery opportunities. It has other uses, but you have to be so sophisticated to make use of those other uses that they all look like one-offs to me. They're fun to look at. I go, oh, how pretty. But I don't go off and tell somebody to try it. It's like, no, really? I don't think so. Oh, chasing down people who went dark before the end of the quarter. Okay, some guys use it for that. Great. But I like the ones who go, you know what? We got 250,000 folks in this market. We want to talk to 137,300 of them in the next three years. We want to set appointments with and hold those appointments with 62,150 of them. And we want to do that over, you know, this fixed period of time. We want to convert, you know, 18.7% of those to first deals. And we want 9% of them to turn into deals after a year or so when they finally, the timing's finally right. Therefore, therefore, let's talk to a whole bunch of them. Therefore, let's not qualify on first calls. There's a whole bunch of therefores that, that fall out of it. What's funny about Connect and Sell as a 10X, because a 10X is weird. I mean, 10Xs are really, really not comfortable to wield, right? They're not. It's like, hey, I give you a sword. It's 10 times more powerful. Let me show you how to use it in the house. Well, I don't have a house anymore, and now I got to go live somewhere else. That's not much fun. So you got to be careful with something this fast, and you got to make sure you're applying it to where it can make a difference. And the big thing I've seen is that most people don't know what would make a difference. They really don't. What they do in their budgetary process is everybody raises their hand and says, I want some. And then the assumption is everything makes a difference. And everything doesn't make a difference. It just doesn't. Right now, only one thing can make a difference. And the hardest thing to do is to go find it. And when you've got something as fast as connect and sell, you either find it or you wrap that Ferrari around a tree. Those are the only two possibilities and it's really quite dramatic. So we get to see that quick, violent bifurcation between aligned situations or aligned enough that you're actually doing something for a reason. That is, you're gonna move a real needle or where you're just doing it because somebody said, you know, I want more, I want more. I'm like the little mermaid, I want more. Is there one department more than another when Roderick talks about the different pieces of the orchestra in an organization that you've seen, Chris, over the years that needs to embrace, albeit reluctantly so, this concert strategy more than another. In other words, I'm used to working in an independent arena and everybody else supports me. Well, it's sales. I mean, sales is is the land of the lone wolf. And we take people into sales development roles and say, the only reason you have to do this job is so you can be a lone wolf someday. (laughs) Right. I mean, we do that. We literally do that. We say, this job sucks. If you do it for a while, we'll let you go lone wolf it up and you'll have a lot of fun. And then you can just do things your way. You can reinvent sales. I mean, after all, it's a discipline that's only a few thousand years old. Maybe you'll come up with a new flavor of it that'll, you know, make everybody socks off. <laughs> You'd be the person. So I just think it's really interesting that, you know, there's this whole sales and marketing alignment problem thing. Right? I think I mentioned once maybe on this show, I talked to John Neeson way back when, founder of Serious Decisions, co-founder. And I asked him, John, what's the, ma- the maximum conversation coverage you've ever seen on inbounds? Like somebody's generating the inbounds, marketing's got them coming in. What's the maximum percentage you've ever seen spoken with at one of your clients? And he just said 9%. Long pause on my side says, so John, does that mean 91% of all marketing budgets are wasted because sales doesn't bother to talk to the leads? Long pause. He says, never say that to anybody. So you, 
it here. <laughs> you didn't hear it here, but marketing generally will do their job within parameters and their job is harder than is right because they're trying to take a stew of information out there, publicly available information, and turn it into some kind of a list of folks worth talking to. I mean, really, that's what it is, right? Sales tends to approach the job like this. Eh, I don't like that one. Why? Well, I assume it's no good because it looks kind of like this other one I didn't like. <laughs> that's, where, that's where the variety shows up first. And we encourage it and fan the flames all the way through the sales process. Chris, you're absolutely right. And, and for so long, it's been the nomenclature of sales is the sun. And the further you get away from the sun, the colder it gets, right? Which there is some truth to that. But at the same time, I love what you were just saying. Too many times in my career, I've seen where marketing says we give so many leads to sales and they never do anything with them. Sales in turn says, yeah, you give us leads, but they all suck. And I've asked one question. And that question is, have you guys ever actually sat down at the same table and defined and agreed upon what a sales or a marketing qualified lead actually looks like? Long pause, to use your word. And the answer is generally, why would we do that? We know what they need. And sales says, we know what we need. Yeah, but have you actually ever told each other what those are? Right. Generally, the answer is not yes. Generally, the answer is not yes. And what's really interesting, and, and, and Roderick, I come from a weird background, right? I'm a physicist who used to build big software systems. Mm -hmm. That's what I did for a living, right? Here's how I build big software system. I draw a big circle on the whiteboard. I draw a line. I'm going to do this from your perspective. It comes out from the right-hand side. It's got an arrow on it. I put a little stick figure at the end of it. I say, here's what we're going to build. Here's its only output it's allowed to have. Right now in our minds, we're only allowed one output. No compound sentences need apply. There's somebody, that's actual human being somewhere on earth, nowhere else. They got a title, they got a job, they got responsibilities. And then I put a little dollar sign over and it goes, when one unit of this output goes to this person, how many dollars are saved or how many are made by them or the organization they're responsible for, right? That's a why on a system, real simple. Then you ask the key question, which is what is the minimum input what are the minimum inputs required to make one unit of output how good do they have to be now if you can answer that question in sales you're golden right you're golden sales is a system that produces an output mm -hmm. all the deal somebody makes money off the deal what are the minimum inputs and are they available that's what nobody asks are they available so sales goes well i i want inputs that i want it to be good well what if good's not available out there that is, what if the information required to get past what you're getting right now isn't available? Well, you got to finish it. And that means in among human beings, you got to talk to somebody. So my suggestion would be this. They should get together, just like you said. But how about if they got together with 20 perfect prospects one at a time? Absolutely. That, that's step two. They've got to yeah. get past each other first. Yeah. right? <laughs> then sit down with that, that perfect prospect together. Yeah. But do they do it? No. And I think the reason is politics. When you come right down to it, budgetary politics rules organizations. Agreed. Somebody gets the money, right? So if I say that I need you, then I'm implicitly saying I need you to get some of the money that's coming to me. And yeah. that I think is the big problem that keeps sales. I think that keeps sales enablement from being appropriate at the table more than anything else. Because like, well, we already decided how much money there is. So now we're kind of done. Yeah. That, that's like trying to go to, to a client after the RP is already written. A little late now. 
<laughs> That's a good example. A little late now. Yeah, a little late now. Thanks for the input, but it's already in ink. Where's the CEO is my question. Yeah. You want results as a CEO? Why aren't you at that meeting? Mm -hmm. Oh, great question. And as a sales practitioner, that's one of the things that I always push for. And that is we cannot have sales enablement initiatives. We have to have sales enablement woven into the fabric of the company. And that only happens from the top down. If this is one of their top three or top five initiatives for the year, then you get movement because you've got some wood behind the arrow. But if it's sales enablement saying, I need you to do this, or in some cases, it would be really nice if you kind of sort of maybe might think about doing this, then you're not going to get anywhere because now you're just, a, you're a nuisance and you're bringing no value. The value comes when it comes from sea level down and they say, this is the direction we're going. And in order for us to hit these success metrics, it requires that each of you communicate, collaborate, and orchestrate together now go play together and figure out how it's done. And if you can't figure it out, then I'm going to have to jump in and help you figure it out. And that's not going to be nearly as pleasant of a conversation. Yeah. Well, there's a fun one there, which is, and this nobody will do, but I like to throw it out there because I, I do it out of probably personality disorder or some other that has not yet. Your crazy happened. idea of fun, Chris. Yeah. I got a funny idea of fun, which is when the CEO goes and sells, and sells real deals, just like everybody else, little ones, big ones, not swoops in on the big ones, but actually sells, sources new deals and sells new deals. You find out what sales enablement needs to provide in a hurry, because that poor sucker needs what he needs or she needs, and that stuff's gonna happen. And then the question is, how do you keep it from being idiosyncratic? How do you keep it from being a one-off for the boss? But if you can take that information back, which is like, wait a minute, you know, I, like I got one right that happens to me all the time. I, I finish a process, part of a process. So I sell a little bit and I finish part of the process and I go to put that information in the CRM and there's a required field I don't know the answer to. In fact, I don't even know what it means. I literally do not know what it means. And when I ask somebody, they say, oh, we always put X in there, whatever X is. I said, well, why do we do that? Well, because that way the required field's filled in, right? It, then required becomes relative. Right. And I think we have a lot of stuff like that, that if the CEO is selling, you find out in a hurry that there's a lot of things we ask salespeople to do that are utter nonsense. And then we don't provide them with stuff that is utter essence. That's the essence of getting the job done. So why, you know, have the CEO sell. That's my recommendation, Corey. <laughs> have a company of all former CEOs and they become the sales organization. That's it, right? And poor guy doesn't have to sell forever, but you know, I don't, I don't like CEOs just selling big deals, the swoop yeah. swoop. I just hate that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm the, my thing is give me the little ones, give me the trash, throw me the stuff nobody else wants. Right. You can't set an example by being a super closer, right? If you only come in and swoop in on the big ones, then you really have no idea what it takes to close those. And to your point, if the, the internal pieces actually talk to each other beyond just the CEO, right? And I think that's another one of the key values of true sales enablement is that we're what I call the translators of dialects and languages. So we've got to be able to speak marketing, product marketing, engineering, HR, et cetera. As an old sales guy myself and a bag carrier, I loved going out. And, and miss those pieces of being able to go out with sales folks because I could go and listen to 10, 12 prospects, customers and come back and say, hey, product marketing, marketing, 
love the company pitch, but we get to slide seven, one of two things happens. Either no one uses it or I've heard it described 10 different ways. Can you either smooth that thing out or get rid of it? Then I can go to product management and say, hey, I've had eight different prospects ask for this same feature. How do we get it moved up on the release cycle? Then I go back to sales and to HR and say, folks, what I'm realizing is we now, we've got our ICP, our ideal client or customer profile nailed. What we really lack in is we don't know what our IEP is, our ideal employee profile, because we're now at a different maturation cycle and we're still hiring like it was yesterday. So what we need really is to look at and identify and address where we're going. Maybe we need a more senior person. Maybe we need to go and hire folks from different verticals or different companies or even the BDRs, SDRs. Let's look outside of those top 10 schools that we always go and look at and we're not getting what we need. If we keep hiring the way that we did, we'll get to the edge of the chasm, but we'll never get across. Now, bear in mind, you've got to have a level, of, a level of credibility to be able to say these things. But if you don't say it, then you're a theorist. You're not a true sales enablement practitioner. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe.